You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 28th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. We don't have to put up necessarily with the levels of inequality or we don't have to necessarily put up with what we've always been told we need to put up with. And I do think it is becoming more and more difficult for your average person just to live their life and people can see that. We'll ask if the economics of happiness can offer any insight into the wave of protests sweeping the world. My guests Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Carol Walker will discuss that and the day's other news including the Chinese Communist Party hunkering down for its upper echelon conclave. Are inscrutable top brass powwows a useful tool of governance? And in the wake of WeWork's trials and tribulations, what is wrong with working the old-fashioned way? Plus... Now it's not just the nation's media pushing back against what's being done in the name of national security, but members of the government itself. It's all a reminder that knowledge is power. And from the perspective of those whose job it is to inform... That's kind of the point. Is it time Australia revised its secrecy laws in the name of press freedom? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Carol Walker, political commentator and former BBC correspondent, and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, the author and broadcaster. We will start by taking a look at ongoing eruptions of rage presently besetting a number of datelines, including, but very much not limited to, Baghdad, Beirut, Santiago, Hong Kong, La Paz and Barcelona. It is obviously the case that such a diverse array of locales will have a diverse array of complaints, but at the risk of stumbling into to the common journalistic trap of assuming that similar things are happening for similar reasons. Are these similar things happening for similar reasons? Uh, Yasmin, first of all, is there some commonality linking all of these? I see what you did there with that question, Andrew. (laughs) It it, it, it was very meta, wasn't it? It was indeed. I think I evaded that (laughs) elephant trap with considerable skill. Deftly, deftly. I mean, obviously, um, regular listeners will know that my passion this year has been the Sudanese protest. So I myself have been knee deep, as it were, on Twitter and Instagram and other social medias as a member of the diaspora, um, being as involved as we can be from the outside. And looking at what happened in Sudan and sort of then, you know, whether it's Barcelona or Beirut or Baghdad um, or, you know, Chile, I think you cannot uh, help but wonder, A, is it people sort of being spurred on by what they see happening elsewhere around the world. Because I certainly know that my friends in Lebanon, for example, have sort of said, hey, we, you know, we saw how you wrote about this um, in Sudan. Can you can you help us you know, get the word out about what's going on? Or they will directly have learnt from my personal sort of experience. Mm. And also more broadly, people thinking, well, actually, we don't have to put up necessarily with the levels of inequality or we don't have to necessarily put up with what we've always been told we need to put up with. And I do think it is becoming more and more difficult for your average person just to live their life. And people can see that and people can feel that in a way, yes, because of the the nature of of the globalized, whether it's social media and the Internet, whether it's the conversations that are happening, it's almost impossible to ignore that somewhere around the world, people are living a more comfortable life and 
There is no structural change happening in front of their eyes to fix that. We'll come back to the question of inequality as a driver of these things shortly. But, uh, Carol, on that thought of contagion, does it strike you that there might be an element of that? Because that can happen. And I was thinking earlier of the the colour revolutions in Eastern Europe and elsewhere in the early parts of the 21st century. But you can go back beyond that to 1968, even to 1848. Uh, Is it the case that maybe... Yeah, an idea just takes hold that people, as Yasmin suggests, see one group of people in one place saying enough is enough and ask themselves, well, why don't we have some of that? Yeah, I think what's interesting is if you look at all these different protests that are happening, as you say, in places as far apart as Chile and Lebanon and so on, in each case there is a underlying resentment often at this issue of inequality and the sense that their elected representatives are not tackling the deep divisions which are impacting their lives. Um, In many cases, there will be a specific trigger. Uh, You know, in Chile, it was uh, the increase in transport prices. Uh, In Bolivia, we saw it was uh, getting rid of some of the subsidies for fuel prices and so on and so forth. But that can be like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I think as Yasmin has been describing, now that so many people around the world are connected through social media, they then do say, well, look, these protests are happening. We can't just sit around and continue to suffer the results of this. And I think what is fascinating, though, is that in this social media age, still the most uh, the most vocal way people feel that they can make their concerns heard is by taking to the streets, which is mm. uh, as old a form of protest as we could possibly believe. And the social media, of course, makes it easier to organise this, but it also means that you don't necessarily have to have these well-organised committees of people who are setting up and organising this demonstration. It is something that can be spread very swiftly to large numbers of people via social media. Uh, Yasmin, the the idea of structural inequality is obviously a huge, vast subject. Uh, But as Carol correctly points out, quite a lot of these protests have been apparently sparked by fairly trivial things. In Hong Kong, it was a somewhat obscure extradition law. In in Santiago, it was, uh, as Carol was pointing out, uh, fare prices on the metro in Beirut. It was a a minor tax on on online phone calls. Is that a paradox or, or does that actually make a certain amount of sense that this is that one tiny thing that people say, nope, that's it, enough? It reminds me of, you know, a couple having a massive argument about who takes <laughs> out the trash, right? And actually what it is is like a structural problem with the marriage um, and a lack of trust and a lack of, you know, but actually the argument starts at something very, very trivial because it's, I think from... But because it's trivial, it means, I guess, it's also, it's understandable. Right, right. Yeah. And it's it's relatable. And you can get people on the streets by saying, how dare they increase... Because what what's difficult is to say, how dare they, um, you know, set up the financial system in a way that reduces our ability to buy houses. And, you know, that's too tricky or too complex. What you need is an easy thing for people to gather around, for people to understand. And then you can start unpacking what's actually behind that. And to your point, I think it is fascinating that we are seeing people out on the streets because there was a time where folks thought, you know, social media will be the answer to how we organise and how we protest. But actually, at the end of the day, people do need to get out onto the streets because it is such a physical way of, of 
showing your anger. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, you're right, we can have what can seem like a minor trigger. It's like there's resentment boiling in the office that, uh, you know, you're not getting enough time off, you're being expected to work too long. But it's when they take away the office coffee machine right. that people <laughs> all hell breaks say, loose. Enough yes. is enough. En- yeah. Enough is enough. Um, but what you have then is when people take to the streets, the response of the authorities can then it, it, it make uh, events spiral and can mm. if necessary if they react in the wrong way can increase the resentment can increase the scale of the protests but i think underlying this you mentioned this point of inequality and you know we were talking about chile there was a fascinating statistic that 1% of the population in chile owns 26% of the nation's wealth and mm. I'm sure that people on social media will be looking at statistics like this. Oxfam came up with a report um, globally, and I'm sure that this is um, right up Yasmin Street, that the world's 26 richest individuals uh, owned as much wealth as the poorest half of the global population last year. And those disparities were were getting worse, with the richest getting richest and the poorest getting poorest. So... Those are the underlying um, factors which I think do connect all these different protests we're seeing. But of course, it will be the individual circumstances in each individual country and the way that those in powers respond that will affect events in those different uh, locations around the world. And to build on that, I think what is really key is that people don't trust that the systems set up, whether it's, you know, the democratic or the parliament, or whatever system is set up to make things better are working for them anymore, right? And so they see this inequality and they also see their inability to change that inequality in any way because they they see the fact that the rich are getting richer and there's nothing they can do about it. And that's, I think, also why people aren't necessarily um, joining political parties in traditional ways, but they are physically getting out on the streets because they're like, we need to disrupt the status quo. And and I think if you uh, you can then suddenly see people seizing on a particular issue, and I think we've seen that in the UK with the great Brexit debate, that people who felt that those in power were not taking their concerns on board saw a vote for Brexit as the solution to all their problems. And I think that can be part of this wider issue, this wider concern that people can't listen, uh, people aren't listening, and people then seize upon a specific cause as an outlet for their concerns. Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Carol Walker, we will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. US President Donald Trump has suggested he may release footage from the targeted assassination of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, leader of the Islamic State. Al-Baghdadi was killed on Saturday at a compound in Syria during an operation by US special forces. World leaders have warned that reprisal attacks are possible. The European Union has agreed to extend Brexit until the 31st of January. The European Council President Donald Tusk said that the UK could leave before the deadline if a deal was approved by the UK's Parliament. It comes as MPs decide whether there should be an early general election. And today's Monocle Minute reports that the Chinese Communist Party is convening for the start of its secretive conclave. It is the fourth such meeting since 2017 
2016 when Xi Jinping secured his second term as the party's general secretary. For more on this story, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Carol Walker and Yasmin Abdul-Majid. Moving seamlessly along from where we were before the break, the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, if not the others, are likely to be high on the agenda this week as the Chinese Communist Party holds the fourth plenum of its central committee. This is a secretive huddle of senior panjandrums last held in 2018. This year, according to Chinese official media, one of the main themes will be upholding and improving China's system of governance and advancing its modernization. And yes, I'm sorry to be missing it as well. But the question raised is, might there be anything to be said for an off-the-record powwow of this sort? Um, Carol, you've met a lot of politicians, many of whom must be enthralled by the idea of being able to undertake such deliberations without constant scrutiny. Well, indeed, and they still try, don't they? (laughs) I mean, here in the UK, you have cabinet meetings which are supposed to be entirely confidential, um, except for the fact that um, cabinet ministers immediately walk out and ring up their favourite journalists and and it's all over social media (laughs) in in a couple of minutes. But the point about the Chinese, of course, is that they have this extraordinarily tight grip and control on communications and just about everything that happens in Chinese society. And I think... When you just read out that purpose of this uh, meeting to uphold and improve the system of governance, uh, that to me is a pretty sinister objective when you're talking about the Chinese leadership, which is increasingly mounting this extraordinary surveillance of its own population and uh, is defying the sense in so many parts of the country that governments feel that as a general rule, they should be a bit more open, accountable and democratic. And the Chinese, if anything, seem to be going back to those old days when we used to look at the Soviet Politburo lined up uh, outside the Kremlin to try and work out what on earth was going on. Uh, Yasmin, should we have got used to the idea by now? And by we, I mean uh, Western observers in particular who have been assuming throughout China's economic boom that at some point, because it's what usually happens, uh, people upon receiving greater economic freedom will also want greater political freedom. Do we need to get used to the idea that maybe quite a lot of Chinese people aren't really all that bothered about the idea? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm going to offer a slightly different perspective, which not everyone may agree with, but I think is about trying to accept the fact that actually the the political value set of your average Chinese person and of the Communist Party is quite different to the Western in that, you know, there is a sense of the collective harmony, quote unquote, being the the, the value that is most important, right? And harmony can mean different things to different people. But in the Chinese context, it's, it is people not making a fuss. It is everyone kind of just doing things that will work for the collective. And so it does mean, and some, of course, that means that individual freedoms that we highly value in the West are not necessarily as valued in, in a place like China. But it also means that Chinese will 
there is a level of trust in the government that they will do what serves this value of, of harmony and the, the collective... That may be the one thing we're really not getting. Right, and I think that is quite interesting because it means that actually people do trust their leaders to sit in a room and to come up with a solution that really works for them. Now, we don't actually have that trust, I think, in a more individualistic society because we're like, well, do they have my best interests at heart? No, I think they have their own interests at heart, therefore I'm not going to trust that what they do in this closed room will work. But there are obviously examples, and I'm <laughs> this might be a slight tangent, but there is a famous there's a song in a musical Hamilton called "The Room Where It Happens," and this guy Aaron Burr says, "I want to be in the room where it happens," um, talking about the Compromise of 1790, which is you know a very a very interesting um, closed room conversation that happened in the early days of of the U.S. Constitution. And it meant that a solution was come to, and no one actually knows what happened in that room. There were no minutes, there was, there was no leaking, anything like that. But when you trust that people are in that room working for the collective, you might actually get a different uh, an outcome that serves the people. I think it's a very interesting concept. I think the only concern I would have is that it may well be that large amounts of the population are just quite happy to have this closed and very controlling authoritarian government. But the problem is that we don't really know because the control over what we hear from China and talking to colleagues who try to work uh, in China and to talk to people, talking to dissident groups is incredibly difficult because of that extent of control and because people are afraid to speak out. Okay. well, finally on today's news news wrap to the Schadenfreude section and appearing in the pillory to receive its due volley of last week's groceries is WeWork, the, by its own description, office space and workspace solutions startup currently providing ample reinforcement of the wisdom that one should never trust any organisation that includes solutions in its mission statement, or indeed has a mission statement. Before we set about the fun task of tittering at WeWork's hubris, some perspective. Though it may have tanked some 80% of its value in recent months, it is still reckoned to be worth circa 10 billion US dollars if anybody's buying. Um, Carol, does WeWork's weird decline and fall all feel a bit early 2000s tech bubble? We don't really learn anything, do we? Well, it's extraordinary to try to work out exactly what factors are at play here because I haven't quite worked essentially, out what they do. Well, <laughs> essentially all they do is rent out office space. So I think the question is, are they really a high-tech company? So they set out to promote themselves as this very, very different way of working and you can go into your office in bare feet and there'll be oat milk flat whites and smoothies on tap and everyone comes and goes and you can intermingle with a different (laughs) bunch of people. But essentially... Are you working for them, Carol? (laughs) Essentially. Am I selling it? Uh, Essentially, they're still providing office space and they're still trying to cater for people who can't afford traditional... rent a traditional office, but might like to have a bit of an office for a bit of a time to uh, pursue perhaps their freelance careers and so on. So I'm still unclear whether the problems they've hit are because maybe they weren't innovative enough, or maybe because they're still relying on people needing an office to work out of when actually people work in such different ways. I know that my own daughter pursues a freelance career 
from a kind of itinerant base around different locations in London, occasionally popping into, you know, the office of mum and dad for a few hours, if that's convenient. And uh, I'm still kind of questioning whether... Is it because they're not innovative enough or because um, they were trying to break the mould of something that people maybe don't want anymore? Uh, Yasmin, as as Carol has delineated for us, we work do in fact rent office space. But why do you think it is that they, like so many other tech startups, feel obliged to slather whatever utilitarian product they provide uh, with lashings of utopian snake oil? Why can't they just say, we rent office space? Well, that just wouldn't be sexy, would it now? (laughs) And I think, you know, this is also a big marketing exercise, right? You've got a very sort of, and people have said he's charismatic. I don't know if he actually would be or if he is just somebody who's good at selling a product. Um, He's $10 billion better at selling a product than I am. I I will give him that. (laughs) There is that. There is definitely that. And I think, I mean, I have been to WeWorks. I am one of these millennial freelancers. And it's, I always found the obsession with it quite fascinating because it's such a bro tech environment. There's like free beer and pizza, neither of which interest me. Um, And lots of people that are kind of the same kind of person. And so I think for where it came from, you know, that kind of Silicon Valley bubble of, yeah, we love free beer and pizza and and yeah, we're all going to buy tons of Bitcoin. You know, really. (laughs) Are are, are there (laughs) colourful beanbags as well? So many beanbags. (laughs) Right. And it's so ergonomically incorrect. Like it really stresses my engineer brain out. But I think what's really fascinating is that because people can buy into this, because if you said it was just real estate, you would never be able to make it as valuable as it is. But if you can sell it as a vision, and that is very American in Silicon Valley, we are going to raise your consciousness. You will come into our space. Are you yeah. working for WeWork? Well, well, <laughs> if only I could get a bit of that $10 billion, I could maybe pay some London rent. But, Carol, you look like you were about to say something. No, I was just interested. I just think the, that fundamentally, though... Um, I mean, the reason why it achieved the success that it has is that I think too many people are so far away from that we work mm. working environment. You know, vast numbers of people, um, even in developed societies like the UK and in different parts of the world, still work in really pretty rubbish offices and they have to deal with an old-fashioned work structure. And people do actually quite like maybe yeah they they got the beer and pizza wrong but maybe if they had put on the the flat whites and the smoothies it would have been it would have been more to your (laughs) and and if um people can find a way of improving the working environment of people i think actually that does have to be an objective which we could all subscribe to and you know perhaps in london we should think a little bit more about the vast numbers of people who still work in really really shoddy old-fashioned workplaces whether they be offices or factories which are barely up to standard and that while we're seeing this we work up and down you know a lot of people are working in pretty ghastly working conditions where you know the health and safety regulations are barely up to scratch and to to their credit we work have quote unquote disrupted an industry and i think that is something worth being happy about and worth sort of celebrating whether it's worth the amount that you know, the stock market in, or they initially thought, I don't know. But I think certainly it's opened up a whole new way of, of working, as it were. Um, and and that's, that's not a terrible thing. Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Carol Walker, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, Australia's knotty relationship with state secrets and media freedom. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. 
This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Australia's media is growing increasingly concerned over the nation's restrictive secrecy laws and their effect on media freedom. And there are now growing calls for a new bill to protect journalists. Karen Middleton is the chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper in Canberra. She brings us these thoughts. It's not what you'd normally expect to see in a free and fully functioning democracy. The front page of every major daily newspaper blacked out with redactions. But all of Australia's major dailies published censored front pages on the same day last week to kick off a national campaign for greater media freedom and to make a collective and forceful point that the way their government is enacting and interpreting laws obstructs public access to information. In a highly competitive market, the Australian Right to Know campaign has united arch-rivals. Commercial media, including News Corp, Guardian Australia and the former Fairfax, now nine media conglomerate, have joined forces with the main public broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and against Prime Minister Scott Morrison's Conservative Coalition. The group is demanding the reform of defamation and freedom of information laws, better protection from prosecution for whistleblowers and journalists acting in the public interest, and the ability to contest national security search warrants being executed against them over what they publish and broadcast. The protest has sprung from media coverage of the web of laws the government is introducing to keep watch on Australians in the name of national security and on its attempts to keep secret anything that might be embarrassing. Back in June, Federal Police raided the Canberra home of News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst and the next day, the ABC's Sydney headquarters in relation to separate and unconnected news stories, each based on leaked defence information. Smethurst had reported almost a year earlier on plans to expand the remit of cyber spy agency, the Australian Signals Directorate, to allow it to target Australian citizens. The ABC had attracted security agencies' attention for a different series of stories run another full year before that. Those reports on television, radio and online by journalists Dan Oakes and Sam Clark had revealed that Australian Special Forces soldiers who fought in Afghanistan were facing allegations of war crimes, allegations that are now also being investigated. The police raids became a flashpoint for growing public concern about increasingly draconian national security laws and what media organisations argue is a creeping security state that's trampling on Australians' right to know what's being done in their name. Prime Minister Morrison dismissed the concerns, suggesting in the Australian Parliament last week that journalists were just seeking a free pass. But his own government has recently introduced that very system – In response to the outcry over the raids, the Attorney-General Christian Porter issued a legal directive to law enforcement agencies that no journalist should be prosecuted without his express permission. While that may be a sign the public unease has begun to bite politically, it didn't satisfy the media. They, we, don't believe politicians should be deciding who gets charged either. 
The media organisations and their supporters argue the protections should be legal, not political, and focused on the public interest, not the interests of parliamentarians eager to achieve re-election. A key watchdog on the security apparatus, Parliament's powerful bipartisan Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, has now been directed to investigate the impact of security laws on press freedom. That inquiry is underway. While it progresses towards a final report, News Corp and the ABC are demanding to know from the government and prosecutors whether five months on from the raids, it's still possible their journalists will face charges. And the concerns persist about the reach of security laws. Four days after the papers published their protest front pages, launching a campaign that will run for a month, that same parliamentary committee handed down a separate report into proposed new security legislation on facial recognition and data matching. The legislation is designed to allow the government to gather and match up mass biometric data on Australians to make it easier to track people and charge them with crimes. But the committee, comprised of members from the major opposition and government parties, said no. It said the legislation was too far-reaching, breached civil liberties and that the drafters should go back to their drawing board. So now it's not just the nation's media pushing back against what's being done in the name of national security, but members of the government itself. It's all a reminder that knowledge is power. And from the perspective of those whose job it is to inform... That's kind of the point. That was Karen Middleton, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yolin Goffan and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Listener.